0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Throughout Scripture, there are countless promises Uh, especially in the Gospels and in in the writings of Paul, but especially in the Gospels and especially from Jesus himself. Jesus said over and over again, Ask whatever you will, and I will give it to you. And uh, he didn't just say it once, he said it repeatedly, and he said it quite emphatically. The prayer is supposed to be an event, uh, a habit of our life, where we go to God and we ask for stuff, and he does it. Right? And uh, as I said last week, there's, there's really two, for me personally, I don't know how it is for you, but for me there's two great issues in prayer, difficulties in prayer. And one is what I talked about last week, is that I'm just very prayer ADD, and just the whole thing of focusing in prayer, and uh, what that's about. We talked about that last week. But the other uh, big issue for me, and I think for a lot of believers, is that honestly we feel like prayer doesn't really work. may feel that? You don't have to raise your hand. But I feel that often, and you know, I feel like... God said this, but, you know, honestly, I asked for a lot of stuff, and God did not come through. And so it's like, what's the point? You know, if God's not going to keep up his end of the bargain, why should I keep up mine, right? And uh, that's, uh, I think, something that many believers struggle with. Um, And it's interesting, you know, there's there's, there's some kind of interesting ways we rationalize this. And, uh, you know, one way is to say, Well, you know, really what God promised is that he would answer all our prayers, right? Which means, you know, maybe yes, maybe no, maybe wait, right? So if you ask for stuff and you don't get it, then, you know, God's answering you by saying no, right? But that's not actually what Jesus promised, right? Jesus did not say, ask whatever you will and I'll give you an answer, right? Like the magic ball, you know, you shake the little magic ball. Am I going to be lucky today? (laughs) Not in your dreams, you know? Uh, it's not what it says. He says, ask for things, and you will get them. Okay? That means the answer is not no or wait. It means the answer is yes. right? That's what the promise is. Um, but in my life, that's often not exactly how it works. Right? So, so how do we reconcile this? Well, there's, there's several ways we could look at this. First of all, we could say, you know, God's just a liar. You know, he said that just to con us into something. But he had never had any actual intentions of, of doing what we, of what we asked. He's just making up stuff. But of course we know that's contrary to all of God's character and nature. So that can't be true. Secondly, we could say, well, God promised it and he would like to do more, but he's weak and powerless. That the problem is really uh, not with God's uh, intention. It's just that God can't actually do it. So when we pray and we ask for stuff, God's powerless to do stuff because he's not really God. Also, would be a problem with that view, right? We, uh, we believe that God is all power, omnipotent, all knowing, that he can do anything and everything. So when we ask for stuff, the issue is never a matter of him being incapable. All right, so that, that's, not, that's not the problem. The third one, and this one comes closer to home for mo- probably most of us, is we formulate this uh, theology that says, well, it's just not God's will, right it 's just not god 's will, and what we really mean by that is that um, that, that God didn 't give me what I want because it 's not his will, in other words, you know, this is how it works god 's going to do what he 's going to do right he 's got his perfect will, his absolute will, and if we 're lucky enough to ask for something he 's already going to do, it looks like answered prayer <laughs> right so uh, but you know there 's no sense that that I can bend or move or influence the hand or the will of God, right? Because he's sovereign. He he, he doesn't take our advice. He doesn't really... He's not interested in our opinion or our take on things. And so for prayer to work, it just simply means that we somehow know what God's already going to do and we pray for what he's going to already do. And so then when he does it, we can say, well, see, God answered prayer. But if we believe that, then prayer gets as lame, as meaningless as ever, right? Because... It it means that prayer is nothing more than repeating uh, a certain event, right? Stating it ahead of time, something that's certain and calling it prayer. Well, what's the point of that? If God's going to do it anyway, what's the point of me asking for it, right? That doesn't doesn't even make sense. Um, Now it's true that God's not ever going to act according to his will. And, uh, you know, I, in confession... I've had people, you know, cut me off on the road when I'm riding my bicycle and almost kill me. And i prayed, God, would you just hit them with a lightning bolt? May a tree fall on their car, you know. And most of the time it's probably likely that's actually not God's will, <laughs> you know, sadly. Um, you know, granted, not everything is his will. And there are certainly are things that would be contrary to his will. Okay, so Jesus prays in the garden, take this cup from me. Uh, the Father couldn't ask that because it was in the end, contrary to God's will. So it's true that there is something about God's will, but far too often we make God's will a cop-out for prayer. Right? Uh, and, it, and the truth is, uh, throughout Scripture, we see example after example where men, people, have, have turned history, right? have actually changed and redirected God's will as it was revealed to them. One of the best examples of this is Moses. God said to Moses, I'm tired of Israel. I, I don't know why I, this is a bad idea. Israel was a bad idea. I'm going to destroy them and start over with you, Moses. Right? That's my will. That's my heart. That's my intention. That's what I'm going to do. And Moses prays and he intercedes for Israel and it says God repents. God changes his mind. Right? God redirects his will at the influence of Moses. Right? So prayer... Is something that can be powerful and effective to redirect and reshape and move, turn the will of God. So if you pray and God doesn't get it, it's not just because it's not simply just because that wasn't God's will, right? and you miss guessing His will. Right? Uh, it's a cop out, and it it makes, as I said, it really makes prayer quite, quite a pointless exercise. Right? So if you think that, it's no wonder we don't pray. Right? It's no wonder if we believe. That's all it is, right? Uh, so it has to be more than that, I believe. Uh, so here's the last option, and there may be others, but the last one I thought of, is that the problem is not actually with God or with his will, but with, but with us. <laughs> wow, that's a novel thought. I could be the problem. Well, who thought of that? I don't know if I like that idea, actually. okay, I think I like the other options better, right? Which is why we like this whole, well, it's not really God's will thing, because we don't want to think that I'm the problem, right? Right? Uh, the truth is, uh, hard, plain, cold truth is this. If you pray for things and God's not answering and working, it's because there's something wrong with you, right? There's something wrong with the way you pray. You're not getting it. I'm not getting it, right? I'm not exercising this tool as God has given it to us, as God has instructed us. James puts it this way. He says, He uh, well, I lost it. What does he say? He says, you, you ask, and you, but you do not get because you do not ask. When you ask, you ask wrongly. Some translations use the word motive or ask amiss, but the word literally is you just you pray wrong. You pray wrong, right? And the truth is, there's right praying and there's wrong praying. It's not a matter of praying more or praying long. It's not a, it's not a matter of, you know, if I pray six hours a day, then God will listen to me, okay? Uh, Jesus said, you know, the, the pagans believe that if they babble on and on and on a lot, that they'll get what they want, but it's, it's not it. God says there's a right way to pray and there's a wrong way. If you know how to pray rightly, we can expect God to work and do things, to move in our lives and to answer. Um, you could you could illustrate it this way. Imagine, you know, our worship leader for this morning gets up and they sit down at the keyboard and they, they're going to start off worship, but they just start banging away, just hammering, banging, random keys, you know. Just, and they just make this horrific noise of just chaos and just banging and all over the place, like a three-year-old. just you know, no, no order at all. And the guy looks kind of shocked. And he backs up from the piano. He says, oh, my goodness, there's something wrong with this piano. right? It's broken. Okay. But really, the piano's not broken. He just doesn't know how to play it, right? That's kind of how we are with prayer. The truth is, if if we're banging away at prayer and it's not working, prayer's not the problem. We just don't know how to use it. We, We haven't learned the skill we need to make prayer effective. And the disciples recognized this. And that's why in Luke chapter 11, they said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, right? We want to know how to do this. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't know how to pray. It doesn't mean that they had no clue of what it meant to bow and fold their hands and talk to God. Okay? They weren't saying that. What they're saying is, Lord, we bow, we fold our hands, we talk to God, and when we do, nothing happens. But when you do that, like people, dead people come back to life. That's like way cool. Right? When I do that, it doesn't happen. Right? So teach us to pray. Teaches how to effectively move the hand of God through prayer. And so Jesus answers that by giving them uh, the, what's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Um, and let me just kind of review a little bit from last week, because these two things kind of need to go together. Uh, first and foremost, uh, before you even get to the Lord's Prayer, uh, we looked last week at the story that leads into this, the story of Mary and Martha. And prayer is first and foremost uh, the exercise of coming into God's presence and listening to Him. Right, And and it's real important that we get that perspective. Um, it helps with ADDness. Okay? It helps with our distracted minds in prayer. It helps us focus. And, and it does help instruct us and teach us and lead us into truly effective praying. So, uh, and I won't go into great detail with that, but... Just to say, that to start with, good effective prayer starts with quieting our heart, drawing into God's presence, and sitting at his feet. You know, as, as uh, it says in Hebrews, we, we come boldly to the throne of grace. We enter into God's presence. We sit there before him. And the first job of prayer really is to listen. It's not to talk. It's not to tell God our long laundry list of needs. But really it's to listen, to hear his voice, to commune and fellowship with him. And that involves uh, primarily his word uh, it means reading his word reflective and meditatively. Uh, you know I know a lot of people like reading through the Bible in a year uh, you know, i 'm not against that i 've done it several times um, and that is one way to read the Bible, but it 's not the only way uh, and and really, the Bible is not to be experienced so much as a race you know uh, January first is the finish line december thirty first is the is the is the uh, January 1st is the starting line. December 31st is the finish line. And if I run fast enough through Scripture, I can conquer it in a year, right? Um, there's value in that. But there's, there's also value in seeing Scripture as something like the relationship of photosynthesis, right? You guys know how photosynthesis works? This is dangerous because I'm not actually a biology person, so I'm, I'm treading on dangerous ground here. But as I understand it, plants have to absorb sunlight, right? And uh, they absorb sunlight and it causes photosynthesis. I don't know what that is, it's just a big word I like using. And all I know is the result is it takes sunlight and it turns it into growth and into fruit, right? Uh, Now, the goal of the plant is not to absorb sunlight as quickly as it can, right? So it dashes 100 meters across the field from one shady tree to another, you know, zapping in sunlight. It doesn't work that way. The, the, The plant wants to soak in the sun to linger in the sun, to spend as much time possible absorbing those sun rays. Because the more it absorbs, the more it produces growth and fruit in the life of the plant. Right? And that, that's how I see reading Scripture. Uh, it's absorbing God's Word. It's, it's lingering in God's words. It's contemplating its great messages so that photosynthesis takes place in us. The light of His Word produces in us growth and fruit. Right, And that is a lot of what prayer is. Prayer is as much God talking to us as it is us talking to him. So, so that, that's the first step. We looked at that last week. Uh, but that really is a prerequisite into the Lord's Prayer. Okay? And it, 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 they need to go together. But once we've come to that place, we have been at Jesus' feet, we have stilled our heart and mind, and we can focus on him. Uh, and, and now it's time to do the work of praying, of asking, how do we do that to be effective? Well, Jesus answered that, answers that in the, in the Lord's Prayer, and it's kind of a, a little akin to, um, you know, like I said, it's not—it's not about how long you pray. Okay, uh, people who pray ten hours a day don't necessarily have prayer answered more than the person who knows how to pray effectively in five seconds. Right? Um, it's not about how often you pray. Right? Uh, although, here's a, here's the thing. Once you learn to make prayer work and you see it answer and see God move, I'm guessing you'll pray more, right? It will become more an, an integral part of your everyday life. Um, but it's not about that. It's about, it's about knowing how to pray. It's kind of like when our kids are growing up and they're little and they start asking for things. There's, there's a magic word that parents love to hear, right? And that magic word is? Please, right? The kid comes up and says, "Give me some milk. Give me a cookie." And you go, "Huh? Huh? <laughs> give me a cookie. No, I still can't hear you. Please give me a cookie." Oh, there's the magic word, you know. In a sense, praying effectively is kind of knowing uh, the right words, and it's not—it's not a magic formula. It's not a formula at all, but it's knowing how to approach God in a way that will grab His attention and and uh, move His favor. Uh, We're actually not going to make it very far today. I'd hope to make it through the first half of the prayer. I'm only going to make it through really the first two key words. Let's look at those real quickly. Uh, The first is the relationship of asking. Uh, Jesus starts off this way, and he says, in fact, let me read the passage before we get too much further. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said, This is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation obviously a shortened version from the version we probably learned in Matthew. Uh, same points are here. Uh, really the same exact concepts. Uh, extremely brief. Uh, it probably was given in some so, somewhat of a liturgical sense. In other words, Jesus probably intended by its simplicity and brevity that they would repeat it together as a group prayer. Right. But it's also more than that. And it really uh, is Jesus' explanation of what prayer is and how it works and how to win the hand in favor of God. And so first he starts with the, the sense of the relationship. And uh, it's easy to overlook this little word, Father. And it's also it's, it's, it's kind of sad that in our Christian culture, uh, you know, we, call, we, we call God Father a lot. How many of you, just a survey, how many of you often would begin your prayer with the word Father? Anybody? Okay, you say Father God, Holy Father, or something like that, right? Um, my favorite way to start Thai prayer—it's good to know, you know—it's good to know how to start, you know. And I always say da. It's just kind of a standard, easy way to start that gets my very limited tie off on the right foot, right? Um, we kind of take it for granted that that's how you address God. The interesting thing, though, is, is you look through the Old Testament, God was never addressed by individuals as Father. In rare occasions in the Old Testament, he was, he was depicted as the father of Israel. But you would never have had the boldness or courage to say to God, Father. Okay, That was unheard of. And when Jesus said these words, the first thing that his disciples would have done is kind of been shocked. Okay, You're, you're telling me to come to God and call him Father? What is this? What is this? Because right? he just didn't do that. God was distant. There was something about God that was holy and awesome and beyond us, right? That he was, he was in the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple and you weren't allowed to go in there, right? And the fatherhood of God speaks of a close, intimate family relationship. He has the idea that we can actually go up and you picture a child sitting on his father's lap, right? Because that would not have been an Old Testament concept of God, okay? Okay. Uh, um. So, so when Jesus starts there and says to them, you know, you address Him as Father, Okay, it says tons about the kind of relationship we have of the one with whom we are asking. Right? We are asking not just anybody, not just God in general, not just God as the supreme ruler of the universe, but we are asking in the relationship, in the context of a relationship with God as our Father. And of course, uh, you know, it, it says a lot about uh, the rest of Scripture of our adoption. Uh, God is our Father through Christ, through the work of Christ and through what He's done. He has adopted us as His sons. Uh, John 1.9 says it this way, the, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was come into the world. He came into the, into the very world He created, but the world did not recognize Him. Okay, so Jesus came, but people did not see him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But here's the good news. Uh, to those who believed, to all who accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Right, so we are adopted as sons. Through Jesus Christ, through our faith in him, we have sonship. We, have, we are adopted as his children. Okay, we have a position as his kids. Um. It also speaks really of what it means to come to him as children, right? We come, uh, you know, kids, kids ask for things because they can't get them themselves, right? Uh, children need us to take them to the doctor, to take them to school, to provide food for them because when they're three years old, they just can't do all that stuff. You know, even when they're seven, eight, nine years old, they can't do all that stuff. Coming to God as our father speaks of our dependent relationship with him. Okay, we need God as our father, uh, we need Him to provide. So when we address Him as Father, we come in a, in a position of weakness and need. Right? That's implied in the word Father. But thirdly, and most significantly, uh, addressing God as Father is, a, is an approach that we, we take as a right. Okay? We have a right, a certain right, to ask things from God. Okay? We have rights as children, right? Um, and the way it works, it's not so much true in our, in our day and age, but um, in history, uh, land and property and the wealth of a father was always passed on normally to the oldest son or to a, a son, an heir, right? Now, I didn't actually receive anything from my dad when he passed. It doesn't work that always the way in the world today. But in those days, it did. It was a right of childhood, so if a man had property and wealth when he died, nobody said, well, gee, who's going to get his, his inheritance? Who's going to get his estate? It was assumed. It was a right that it belonged to the children. Right? And it was also a right that the child could go to the father and ask for things. It was your right. And so when, when Jesus says you go to the father, you ask for things as a son, as a child, as a daughter, okay? with that is inherent a right of asking. Um, just to emphasize this a little, and this is something we often miss if you're not really good with Greek, um, all of the verbs that are in this prayer are verbs of petition. Okay, so, um, so he's asking for stuff, and the verbs that are used here are in the imperative mood. Well, in the Greek, I won't a lot of Greek details, but what that means is that the imperative is the verb of command. It's a very strong, it's a very strong way to ask for something. Okay? You're, kind of, you're kind of demanding stuff, is what he's saying here. He's demanding that, you, that God does these things. It's a very strong, bold request. In fact, it's so bold and so uh, strong that in, in, in classical Greek culture, you would never have used verbs like this with a superior. Right? You would never ask somebody who is over you, your, your boss or your father, or you know any kind of superior in society. You would never ask them something like this. Right? So not only does Jesus shock them by using the word father, but he asks in a way that's quite, to put, to put it in our language, kind of in your face. Right? Kind of like the prodigal son, when the prodigal son comes to the father and he says what? Give me my inheritance. Right? That's kind of the force of these verbs. It's strong, it's bold. Um, it ought to be kind of shocking. Can we talk this way to God? Well, Jesus invites us to, right? He invites us to go to God with a certain air of confidence and boldness, right? Again, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says the same thing, come boldly to the throne of grace, right? So we're not asking these things passively or weakly or meekly. We're asking as sons who have, and, and daughters who have rights, right? We come to God, in a sense, insisting that he grant us what he has promised. Now, when you pray, do you pray with that kind of forthrightness? <laughs> right? Or do we pray more, well, you know, God, if it's your will, this would be great, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to answer it, but I'm just, you know, I'm supposed to ask, so, well, there it is. Right? Hey, that's, not the, that's not the tone or the attitude of the Lord's Prayer. It is to be, God, this is what you promised. Right? And I'm claiming this promise as something that you have guaranteed you would do. I'm coming boldly and confidently claiming your promises. Claiming that you are going to give me what I ask. Because I have the rights as a son. Okay? And, and that right as a son is not something I deserve, but it's through the grace of Christ. But nonetheless, by God's grace, I am, I am a son. I am an heir. I am a child. And I come to you as a father. Uh, you know the, the flip side of that, that seems a little harsh and maybe um, stark, uh, But look at it from the other side, if you're a father, right some of you are fathers, some of you are parents uh, when your child comes to you and needs things, don't you want them just to ask, right? If they, they need something at school, if they need if they're hungry, if they need new clothes, if they need something, we want them to ask. Right? We, we as parents who love our kids want to bless our kids. We want to provide for them. We want to give them what they need. Right? Is God as a father any less? Right? God as a perfect father uh, longs to take care of us, longs to provide for us, longs to be seen as our sustainer and our helper. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, Who can ever be against us? Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He also give us everything else? Think about that. God the Father gave us His Son as a sacrifice for our sin. He couldn't give anything more. God as a Father could not give anything that costs more to Him personally than that. If He would do that, what would He possibly hold back from us? Right? Nothing. There's nothing good that God would hold back from us. Okay? He longs to bless us with abundant goodness. Okay, it's his heart. He gave us his son. You know, the only thing in all of the universe, in all of heaven, the only thing in all of God's possession that could have that, that he could give that actually cost him something personally was his son. Because right? he's God. I mean, money's not an issue for him, you know. Like 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 many governments, you just print more, <laughs> right? Uh, we want, you know, we want wealth. God can create universes, right? It doesn't cost Him anything to create. It cost Him a great deal to give up His Son. So if He would not spare that expense out of His love for you, what would He, what He conceivably hold back from you? Nothing. Nothing that's good, okay? Obviously, He would hold back what's not good for us. But there's nothing we ask that's, that's good for us, that would help us, that would be for our benefit that He would withhold. Okay? So when we come to the Father, we need to come with that that sense. We're coming to one in whom we have a close family relationship. We have rights as His children. We come with boldness and confidence. Not so much in those rights as in the loving heart of the Father who longs to give, who longs to answer prayer. Why did Jesus make all these promises in the first place? Why did Jesus say this? Why did Jesus say, ask what you will, and my Father will give it to you? Why would he say that? Unless the Father actually wants to give you stuff, wants to actually respond and answer to your prayer. Um, so that's the first thing, the relationship of prayer. Second thing, he goes on. He says, uh, "Father, uh, hallowed be thy name." The good King James version of it. "Hallowed be thy name." Uh, New Living says, "May your name be kept holy." um, Other versions of it. What in the world actually does that mean? "Hallowed be thy name." Uh, Not about you, but the only time I would ever use the word "hallowed" is in the Lord's Prayer. Right? Not part of my everyday vocabulary. I don't actually hallowed anything, and I wouldn't know actually how to do that. Um, what exactly does this mean, this phrase, hallowed be thy name? Um, for a long time I had heard sermons that said what this means is that you're supposed to worship God first. Like when you want to ask for something, God, before you can really ask, you've got to worship him first. Right? So you start off saying, well, God, you know, you're amazing, you're cool. Awesome God. By the way, I need a new car. Okay. Okay. It works for high school students. Why not us? <laughs> you know. Um, and so, so, yeah, So that's oftentimes how this is taught, and and commentaries will say this, and books will, will teach this. That what it's talking about is we need to start everything with worship. Okay. Again, it's hard to argue with that. I and mean, who would say there's something wrong with worship? Shouldn't we worship? I mean, we do it every Sunday. We worship first, and then we hear the Bible. There must be something biblical about that, right? Well, actually, that's not what it says. And the problem with that is that Jesus puts it here as a, as a request. Okay? He's not saying, he's not saying, well, let's worship God first, and then we can ask God for stuff. This is part of the request. Okay? It's the first request. And it's stated in, 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 in the language of asking for something. He's asking, God, would you hallowed your name? Whatever that means. Okay? It's a request. Okay? It's, it's asking God to do something, not us doing something first. Right? So that's not it. Right? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't worship as part of your prayer time. Okay? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in terms of the Lord's Prayer, and in terms of what Jesus is saying here, it's not about worship. Right? It's about asking for something. Um. Maybe it would help us if we could figure out what the word "hallowed" means. Um, the word, of course, means is a derivative of the word "holy." Holy is your name. Okay, that's uh, and if we were to if we were to translate kind of translate the King James, that would be the direct translation. "Hallowed be thy name" would be "Holy is your name." All right. Um, there's a problem with that though, and that is that in the Greek the word hallowed is actually a verb, okay? So the word holy is made into a verb. This this gets kind of complicated, hang with me for a minute. But if you want to take a word like holy and make it a verb in English, how do you do that? Well, you add endings to it, like holify. (laughs) Like petrified, mummified, holified, right? Well, the problem is that's not actually a word in English. Holify your name. Okay, it would be much more accurate but it's not good English, right? Uh, so in, in translating this verb, what we've had to do is we've had to add another verb. So we say holy, and we have to add some kind of verb to make that a verb. And so, like in the King James, they add the to be verb, holy is your name. The problem with that is that, it, it, again, it takes it out of the, the, the language of a request and makes it a statement. Okay, so now we're just declaring, God, you're holy. Okay. but again it's not a request, and Jesus here is making a very definite specific request for something all right so it's more than just stating the obvious God you're holy now give me a car <laughs> okay it's not what it's saying all right and uh, if, we, if, we, if we have that view of it we're still missing the point because it's a request right we need to make this into a request well let's look at what we're, what we're requesting we're requesting that something is holy. Well, specifically the object of that is his name, okay? Uh, so the prayer is really about God's name more than holiness. So holy is the verb, the, the object of what we're trying to get holified, my new word, trying to holify his name. You know, what does that mean? Uh, what does his name represent? Well, it represents his character, his nature, his being as it's revealed to the world, right? It's, it's the full expression of all that God is, is represented in his name. And uh, in the Old Testament, we can do all kinds of cool studies on what God's name meant and how he used it, um, uh, what his f- true name was. But all that to say his name represents something of his character. And we kind of know how that works. We say, such and such has made a name for himself. What we mean is they've, they've become famous, right? They've established a certain reputation attached with their name. And we know famous names, Winston Churchill, Billy Graham, uh, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, right? They're names that stand for something. Uh, they stand for the person, and they stand for all that the person lived for and exhibited in their life and did, right? There's something about the name that's representative of the whole being and the whole person and their whole mission. Same is true with God. His name represents how he's perceived in the world in his being and character and activity, So what we're asking is that this name, this representation, this reputation of God, something would be done to it, right? Um, Well, what exactly are we asking? Well, we're asking that it be made holy, right? Uh, Not that it is holy, and it's important to make this distinction. You know, if we're asking that God be made holy, it would imply he's not holy, okay? We're not praying that God would get his act together, (laughs) That, you know, God, we know you're kind of having an off day, so we're going to pray for you that today you get it together, right? And you actually do it right. Okay? That's not what we're praying, right? God is holy. God is absolutely perfect in holiness. So what are we praying that would make his name holy? Well, obviously what we're praying for is that his name, his reputation, would be seen as holy by the world. That's what this prayer is about, Right? by us, by people everywhere, that, that God's name would be exalted and expanded as majestic and wonderful. Okay, that's what Jesus is praying here. He's saying, God, you are holy, you are perfect, but people don't see it. Right? They don't get it. So I pray that you would reveal and manifest yourself in such a way to make your name more holy to make yourself more known in glory and majesty and power in the, in the, in the world among men. And the word holy can mean several things. Uh, it can speak of moral excellence and purity. Right? So when we talk about God being holy, we're, we're, we're talking about His, His perfection. Right? He's without sin. He's pure. He's pure light. He's pure goodness, pure love. Right? So we're praying, God, may the world see that you're not like... Us. Okay, you're not, you're not a, a God made in man's image. You know, the Greek gods were, were people, uh, flaws and all, just on steroids. Okay? He says, you're not like that. You are absolutely pure, morally good and true and perfect. Uh, the word holy has the idea of something being sacred, uh, being specially designated for the most sacred and special uses. Uh, the best example of this is the holy of holies in the temple. Uh, in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And if you remember, the Holy of Holies was a sacred space. In other words, it was, it was viewed as incredibly... Uh, we don't have a good English word. This is my problem, I struggle with this, because we don't have good English words. Uh, and it was a treasure that was, in a sense, untouchable, right? Who could go into the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. And that only once a year. And then there were rings and barriers and barriers and barriers to keep people away. Okay? And the less you were like the high priest, the, the more barriers stood in your way because it was sacred space. This last fall, I got to go to Jerusalem and got to go to the, the Western Wall, which is the outer wall of the Old Temple, original Herodian Temple complex. And as we go, our Jewish guide said, You know, he said, There's nothing holy or sacred about this wall. He says, It's just a big wall, it's old. There's nothing holy about it. He says, we don't, we don't go there because we worship the wall. But he says, this is the deal. He said, that wall is the barrier that keeps us from standing on and going to the place, which actually they wouldn't, have stand, they wouldn't stand on it, but coming near to the, whole, the place that was the Holy of Holies. And so he said, we go to that wall because it's as close as we can possibly get to the Holy of Holies, that sacred piece of land. Uh, and he said you know if we could get in there we still would, we would not go cuz we could not we could not imagine we, we could not imagine stepping on that ground because it is sacred right it is holy ground it is set apart purely for god alone right when we pray god make your name holy that's that's something of what we're praying god would your name be held in such esteem Such incredible regard that people would be in awe of it. That people would long to be near it, but as they get near there would be a sense that they can't get too close because it is so wonderful and incredible and good. It is so sacred, right? That's what he's praying. Along with that is the idea of consecration. Uh, To make something holy or consecrated means to set it apart solely for God's use as opposed to common, right? So in the Old Testament, they had all these laws between the common and the sacred. To make something sacred meant it was devoted exclusively for God's use, right? Uh, it, it couldn't be shared. It couldn't be used as a common thing. So the te- utensils and the pots and the altars that were used in the temple for, for worship there, you know, the, the knives that they used to chop up the meat, you, you couldn't take that home and use it to, you know, fix breakfast, because right? it was sacred. Right? Um, in fact, once you offered something on the altar, you, you brought a, a lamb and you offered it on the altar, it became sacred by touching the altar, which meant you could only eat it in the temple. You could only eat it as part of a religious sacred ritual. Right? It was no longer available to make your, you know, your bologna sandwich for work tomorrow, because right? that was a common use. Same thing true of God's name. He is set apart, unique. Uh, he is not ordinary and is not to be regarded for ordinary use. Right. He is set apart, unique, unparalleled, unmatched. Right. He says, "God, I pray that people would have that sense of Your name." Right? Uh, you know, you hear people use God's name in vain. You know, it, it ought to just. Shock us because we're Christians and we live in a bubble. <laughs> but it also ought to shock us because that name is holy. It's not to be used for common use, right? That's what it means. Um, it means there's a certain awesome brilliance and majestic beauty, right? Uh, when, when, when you see the descriptions of God's holiness in heaven, it's described in majestic glory and, and grandeur. There is something about uh, God's holiness that bears the weight of glory, as C.S. Lewis says. Uh, there's something to it that is substantial beyond uh, our, our concept, and it strikes us with a sense of deep awe and reverence. Right? His name. When we, and, and it's, It really is unfortunate and sad that in, in modern American language, we no longer use the word holy. It's, it's, it's kind of one of the downsides of democracy. Democracy, we've made everything even and equal, and we've made nothing holy and sacred. Right? There's nothing special, including God. Right? Um, his name ought to be grand. right? Um, and so, so this is, in, in essence, what he's praying here. He's praying that God's name would be esteemed and regarded with utmost honor and sanctity. Again, using really old and archaic words that don't mean so much to us anymore, sadly. Um, And we as believers need to recapture some sense of that word holy, right? Um, Where our language may fall short, hopefully our visions of God don't, right? That we begin to get a sense of the majesty and holiness of God. So what we pray is this, and this is the beginning of all prayer, that God's reputation as a holy God, unique, perfect, all-glorious, magnificent, awe-inspiring, majestic, all-powerful, far beyond us, amazing, wonderfully beautiful, infinitely complex, but incredibly one, Unlike anything we can imagine or know, exalted and throned above the universe, an unfathomable, unending love, kind of holy God, right? Uh, Jesus says and, and captures in these incredible four words that sentiment, right? That sentiment. I'm praying that, that we, that our families, that people all around the world, would have this sense, and it's important to see that we don't do this. Okay, Jesus doesn't pray. pray. God, pray that we would be able to make Your name great. He doesn't say that. He says, God, you make Your name great. I pray that you would holify Your name. You would so exalt Your name in the world that people everywhere would stand in awe at Your name. And we could talk about what name that is. Uh, it could be many. It, it, it is Jesus, right? That, that the name of Jesus would be so lifted up that people everywhere would stand in awe or would bow in terror at the name of Jesus, right? Now, uh, I, I think that's what he meant in that phrase, right? And and, and, and more. And, and I encourage you to just meditate on what this means for God to be holy and for us to pray the extension and exaltation and expansion of His holiness. But it's important to note that it's not just words, okay? This is not just a magic formula. I mean, these are magic words, okay? I'm telling you, if you learn to pray these words and mean them, it is magic. It will move the hand of God in powerful ways. Uh, But it's more than just words, and the problem is this. Um, You can't really pray these words convincingly before God unless you believe it and live it, right? Because uh, God's too good, okay? And I've tried this, okay? I've thought, you know, well, God, just think how good it would make you look if I won the lottery. I'm, I would tell everybody, see, God did this for me, right? <sighs> okay, you know, God's actually smarter than that. And and uh, Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing, Spirit and soul, bone and marrow, and it examines the intentions of our heart. Okay? You can't fake God out. Okay? You can't just put a good spin on it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I know how to make this work. Watch this one, God. Boy, for your glory, you know. It doesn't work that way, right? God's too smart for that. Uh, It has to come from our heart. It has to be because it is. Because His glory, the exaltation and expansion and extension of His glory, truly is the passion of our heart and life. Uh, When you start living in that place where what matters to you more than anything in the universe is the glory of God, you will begin to see prayer answered powerfully. If prayer doesn't work because there's a problem for me, the first problem is here. We really don't seek God's ultimate glory. And if we're honest when we pray, what we're really after is that my life would be more comfortable, would be easier, would have less headaches for the sake of my own benefit. And you know, if God gets glory out of it on the way, well, it's good for him, but that's not really what I'm after. right? And Jesus says... uh, you know this. Ha- this this is the beginning point of prayer. This is the first step of prayer. May the name of God be glorified. Uh, and you may, as I often do, come to prayer and go. You know, God, honestly, that's not my passion. Well, if it's not, that's the first place to start. And we should pray this for ourselves. God, make Your name great and holy to me. Right. Reveal Yourself. In fresh and incredibly powerful ways to me, so that I can see your holiness and your glory. Right. Uh, does God want to do that? He wants to do that. It is His longing and desire to remove from your eyes the blinders, the lies of Satan, your own selfishness, my own selfishness and pride that keeps me from seeing fully who He is. You know, I'm shocked. I mean, I'm really, I'm just kind of shocked and amazed, but not at the same time, not because I see it in my own life. How far the modern church has gotten from a sense of living solely for God's glory. We talk about it, we say it, but the reality is, we mostly live for ourselves. Right? We just do it in a way that looks, you know, acceptable. God sees through all that. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.